0: Hi everyone, my name is Eric Ucherenko, I'm a Master of Public Policy student in the Blavatnik School of Government, University of Oxford. Today, we are honored to talk to Mikhailo Vinitsky, Deputy Minister of Education and Science of Ukraine, responsible for higher education. Mikhailo is implementing a sweeping reform agenda in Ukraine's higher education sector, aimed at improving the quality of educational outcomes and making higher education more accessible. Mikhailo, welcome.
1: Thank you for inviting me. And by the way, it's not, I am not implementing this uh, program. It is a we, uh, because obviously it's it's not a question of one person, it's a, a very much a team effort. And I would say actually a national effort on the basis of uh, a, a great many people that are involved.
0: Yeah. Um, let me start from a more personal question. You were born in Canada to the family of Ukrainian diaspora members. At the age of 22, You graduated from the University of Waterloo with a degree in history and philosophy. Afterwards, you started at Cambridge and got a PhD with a thesis on cultural evolution in the De Novo market sphere in the uh, post-Soviet Ukraine. Has it always been your aspiration to come once to Ukraine? Did you imagine your life differently back in the 1990s?
1: I would say that I very much imagined my my life very differently. Um, In 1989, I was 18 years old. Uh, and, uh, in, in the Canadian system, it was very interesting at the time you could finish school instead of in uh, May or June, you finish, you could have the option of finishing school in January. And I did that. Uh, and I went to work, uh, made some money, uh, and then had an opportunity to go on an exchange program to what at the time was the Soviet Union, uh, to something called the, um, I guess the minor academy of sciences, it would be basically the equivalent of a sort of a gifted program or an after-school program. And it was an exchange program between Ukrainian diaspora schools, meaning Saturday schools, and, um, and this sort of uh, post, I guess, outside of sort of normal, I guess, informal education would be what it would be called sort of gifted program in, in Lviv in Western Ukraine. And I, uh, I traveled there uh, for a three-week trip, which was really very much a sort of a, um, I would say, a life-changing experience. This was still the Soviet Union, but nevertheless, this was a time when Glasnost and, and Perestroika were just starting. And uh, this was sort of the land of my roots, but it was certainly not something that at the time I would have even considered living in, um, because it was the Soviet Union, this was the enemy. This was the, uh, the state that was occupying my homeland. Um, or in my parents' homeland. My parents immigrated to Canada as children. And I was very much interested at the time uh, in a military career. Uh, and I actually had been accepted to the Canadian Armed Forces, uh, which was a, very, it was a very difficult acceptance program. There was uh, 53 of us that went into the final round and five were accepted for pilot. And I was planning on going to uh, Royal Military College of Canada uh, to become an, an officer in the Royal Canadian Armed Forces uh, and to fly F-18 jets. Um, wow. just before my, um, or just after my return from this exchange program, I got a call from my recruiting officer and saying that, uh, I'm supposed to be reporting for basic officer training, uh, within, I think it was the next three days or something like that after my return. And he asked me where I was. And I said, I had gone to Europe just before, just before training had started. And he asked me which country I'd, I had visited. And I told him that I had gone to Ukraine and he looked at, or I remember the the pause on the other end of the phone and he said, um, uh, uh, I'm looking at a map and there is no such country. And I said, well, I'd been to the Soviet Union. And he said, uh, well, congratulations, your security clearance has just been lifted. And so my military career ended very, very quickly. uh, And I ended up going to a civilian university. Um, and my life changed as a result of that trip. Uh, I then did uh, a short exchange program and third year university in 1991. I went to a place called Dnipropetrovsk, which is in eastern Ukraine, uh, very much yeah, a frontline city at this point. Sorry,
0: that's my hometown.
1: Oh, it's your hometown, Eric. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I went to Dnipro and I um, in my third year of university, I spent uh, one semester there. And um, this was back in 1991. So I was traveling back and forth in the 90s and there was a lot of interest, et cetera. But, uh, but the actual decision to move to Ukraine was probably, it uh, took about 10 years in the making, sort of end of the 90s, 2000s, uh, after or during perhaps, during, sometimes during, probably during the PhD, after the PhD, uh, the PhD thesis was very much involved in in or had had a lot to do with Ukraine. And uh, as always, uh, these final decisions have a lot to do with personal issues. Uh, my wife was, is from Lviv, and uh, at some point in time, I made the decision that uh, it was probably easier for me to be moving towards her rather than the other way around. And so we moved to Kiev and have made a life since. Four kids later, um, no regrets.
0: Wow, such a powerful story. How did it feel like... Coming to Ukraine after having lived almost all your life back then in Canada,
1: um, I think that uh, look, it was it was challenging. I had just uh, I I just spent some time in business in Canada. I spent about seven years running a company together with my brother. Uh, my brother still owns the company, so I had uh, I had a bit of a, a sort of a I guess a material cushion, if you like, or financial cushion. Um, I had also completed uh, well as in Oxford, you like to say it, the other university. Uh yeah so I went to uh I spent 4 years uh doing my my MPhil and then my PhD at, uh, at Cambridge. And so uh I was up for new challenges and it was sort of a, at a time when I had done some things in in business and done some things in academia and I understood that uh that there was an opportunity to do something new in a country that was um well I guess to on the one hand home um because I felt very much at home uh but on the other hand uh challenging because it's a country that uh, that has been through massive changes uh 2004 orange revolution 2013-14 revolution of dignity uh after that the, uh, the 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 launch of russia's invasion into the donbass and, and the annexation the illegal annexation of crimea and now full-scale war for two years um i've lived a very full life uh and uh i'm not planning on ending it yet sounds like uh yeah, lived a full life sounds like i'm a pensioner i'm not <laughs> quite there yet but um yeah uh, land of opportunity, very much a land of opportunity, and I don't regret a minute of it.
0: Yeah, um, that's a very interesting phrase that you often say that Ukraine is the land of opportunity, which sometimes has a certain cost, uh, the price of instability. Could you please mm-hmm. elaborate on what do you actually want? What do you? Well, mean I think
1: that, that uh, look, I, I've always been interested in this phenomenon of, of entrepreneurship. And I've um, and so my thesis is about entrepreneurship. I was an entrepreneur myself. I've always considered myself to be a bit of an educational entrepreneur, if you like. Entrepreneurs are people that um, that that like to achieve new things, um, but at the same time are quite uh, have low. Uh, well, there's this thing called risk aversion, and we are quite low in terms of our risk aversions. In other words, we're okay with with handling risk. I understand very well that. Um, risk aversion is or low risk aversion is not something that is common to a lot of people most people are uh very much into stability uh in other words stability is much more attractive than entrepreneurial opportunity and this is something that we find in in basically pretty well every sociological study um i think that if you like if if to a to a non-ukrainian audience i would explain it this way um you know in the, uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries and into the 19th century, there was always this, this attraction of the Wild West and sort of, you know, settling new territories. Um, and, uh, and, and I think this is something that, you know, in this particular case, in my case anyway, it wasn't about the Wild West. It was perhaps a little bit more about the Wild East. Um, and being able to make not only material opportunities, I think that Ukraine is really... Uh, I mean, I can't say that I've lived badly over the last 20 years. I, I moved here permanently in 2002, uh, so it's been. I mean, you know, for most of your listeners, I've lived for uh, longer in Ukraine than you've lived on this earth. Um, so, I mean, I'm, Ukraine is very much home, uh, and I can't say that I've lived badly. Uh, so, I mean, like I said, four kids, uh, our material uh, level of, of of sort of well being uh, is is not bad. And I don't pay bribes and I don't take bribes. So, I mean, the, the whole idea of, you know, having, having to be engaged in corruption uh, is a bit of a myth. Uh, this is a land of opportunity. And if you've got the abilities and if you're prepared to take some risks, um, this is a place where you can leave a mark uh, after yourself. And I think that's really, you know, what most entrepreneurial people are really after. Uh, it's not necessarily about material things. It's about... Leaving a mark, um, or if you like, leaving something. I mean, we're all, we're all finite people. Uh, our time on this earth is, uh, is temporary. And uh, we need to, if you like, leave something after ourselves. And I think that it's a lot easier to leave a mark uh, in a country that is unstable, that is constantly changing, that's transforming, that's very vibrant, uh, than it would be in a more stable environment like the UK or Canada or the US.
0: Right. Yeah. I think that many of our listeners can relate to these words also in terms of their own countries uh, from which they come. That's indeed a, s- a strong motivation. And sometimes something not everything is gold that glitters, right? I think right. that this this could be relevant to two words. Um, in May 2023, you were appointed as the Deputy Minister of Education and Science Um, And as you said, uh, you are working as a part of a big team, uh, reforming um, Ukraine's higher education. It does seem to be a logical continuation of over 20-year effort of yours in, in the educational sector of Ukraine. At the same time, it's sometimes difficult to capitalize on your expertise to receive a mandate to implement changes. Could you please elaborate on the moment when you were invited to change Ukraine's government in such a crucial and and decisive moment in the country's um, history?
1: Well, the the story of that appointment is actually like everything else in Ukraine was a bit of a a surprising thing. This is a country of surprises. I was actually, uh, the first three months of uh, 2023, I was actually planning on um, writing or putting some impact into a book on uh ukraine's social structure which i think is an interesting thing as it as it has become um i think um manifest uh during the full-scale invasion and we'll talk a little bit about this it's the concept of heterarchy if you like so i was working on a very much um a, a sort of if you like an academic project and i was on a fellowship to harvard university in the u.s and um suddenly at the the end of March, beginning of April, I don't remember the exact date, I got a call uh, from the Ukrainian, from a friend of mine who worked at the time in the Ukrainian embassy uh, in Washington saying that, um, uh, well, the president would like to speak with you. I'm like, excuse me, Zelensky wants to speak with me? Um, Yeah, uh, can you get on a plane? I'm like, no, I can't. I've got a three-month fellowship at Harvard. Well, we'll organize something for you over Zoom. And um, and this was a time when that we had just had uh, a new appointment of a new minister of education. and um, uh, the system that exists in Ukraine at the moment is, although education is obviously not part of the brief of the president, he's not responsible specifically for for uh, for education, but he does he is the head of the largest faction in parliament and therefore um, appointments in the executive branch that happen, uh, that, that must be approved by the uh, by the parliamentary uh, system. Um, go through go through Zelensky. So I had a, a twenty minute uh, a twenty minute Zoom meeting with the president. That was obviously something completely new to me. Uh, prior to that, we had uh, talked extensively with the new minister of education and uh, sort of talked about the reform agenda that we wanted to go through. Um, I think that and Oksana Suley, who's the minister of education, was was. Um, was very good about this he says look um just realize that you're getting into a triple job meaning that normally when you were getting into I mean deputy minister of education would be um the equivalent in the UK system of as minister okay so because in the UK system there is a um what's called the state secretary or the secretary of state for education who is responsible for everything in education and then there's ministers of higher ed and and, and schooling etc so my job would be the equivalent of a minister in the UK system uh, because Oksane Sovey as minister would be the equivalent of the Secretary of State uh, and a cabinet member. Uh, I am not a cabinet member. Um, the point being that uh, the in a normal situation, you would normally have a certain sort of, if you like, administrative function that you would have to uh, take care of as someone who is the caretaker of that sector. But in a wartime, that administrative function is obviously doubled because I'm also responsible for Uh, a massive number of uh, universities that have been displaced. I mean, 31 universities have been displaced since 2014, uh, seven displaced since 2022, um, and several that have been displaced twice. In other words, displaced in 2014 and then again displaced in 2022. Um, We have issues that have to do with destruction of of property. Unfortunately, we have uh, casualties, civilian casualties, um, you know, amongst students and amongst um, higher education uh, workers, in other words, professors and also administrators and support staff, and obviously that 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 creates an additional amount of, of of workload. And on top of that, we have come in here to do some reforms, to do transformations that, quite frankly, have been very much outdated. So uh, my work day begins at seven in the morning, and it usually goes till about ten at night. Uh, and it's a six-day job. I usually take Sundays off. Um, so uh, it's been quite hectic. Uh, it's been eight and a half months now. Uh, we've put together a very comprehensive reform plan, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit. Uh, but many of much of that reform plan has to do with things that were actually were started in 2014, continued in spurts over the last 10 years. Um, and when I say in spurts, because we tend to have sort of reformist governments come in work for a year and a half two years three years put in some and then sort of the system needs to i guess quieten down for a little while and then there's the next spurt we went through a spurt from 14 to 16 in higher ed and then after that another spurt uh 18 19 uh and and then and now for the last little while there was a a a government that uh that was less reformists and now we're into the next if you like Uh, spurt of of, of fast reforms. Reforms are things that need to be done quickly or not at all. That's sort of the general general consensus. So we are in very much a sort of a a higher education shock therapy period, if you like.
0: (laughs) How do you manage to balance uh, trying to deal with these kind of current affairs and existing problems and trying to implement more forward-looking reforms?
1: Uh, at the end of the day, I don't manage it. Uh, I have a staff that, uh, thankfully, is has to do with uh, managing sort of day to day activities. And that staff, I mean, I've been very lucky because the civil service in higher education has been very, very good. And my, I'm very proud of my team. Quite frankly, they're not really my team. They're a team of people that have been um, that have been involved in managing the sector for many, many years, uh, and they tend to take care of the stability aspect. And then my job. Is to if you like do the entrepreneurial sort of, you know, excuse the expression, shit disturbing parts, right? Um, in other words, you walk in and you sort of say, okay, well, this is how we how we've done things traditionally, and now we're going to be. Why don't we do things differently, right? And now that question usually comes to gets gets, uh, uh, I guess, um, it gets in, um, in embodied in uh, new legislation, new executive orders uh, and, and certain amounts of mergers and, and generally changes. So, um, my job generally is to communicate reforms, uh, and to lead the, uh, the implementation of, uh, the, if you like, um, the regulatory environment that needs to be put in place for reform. Um, and then I have a staff that takes care of everything else in terms of making sure that, uh, the, the reforms that we put in place don't make the system collapse. Uh, and quite frankly, that tandem is very, very important.
0: Right. I think now is just the right moment to just go through all the proposals that you mm-hmm. either implemented or you are going to implement. I will try to outline most of them. It may not be comprehensive, but it's still a very long list. So I will just go into that. So you're introducing partial state grants to finance student studies instead of a black and white system of full funding available for only 40% of applicants, applicants, with others getting no support at all. You're also introducing individual learning trajectories to let students make um, a more conscious and later choice of a narrow specialization, increased scope for selection of disciplines driven by students' individual interests. You are given more freedom in terms of the pace of studies, allowing to choose between covering either 30 or 80 ECTS credits per semester. Professors, on the other hand, have received more freedom to focus on either teaching or conducting research. You aim to reduce the number of universities, encouraging them to merge and form more capable and high-quality higher education institutions. Finally, you also plan to introduce metrics associated with the quality of teaching and research to the mechanism determining allocation of funding for universities. Um, That's, um, in short, uh, the breadth uh, of your reform agenda. Where do you take your inspiration from it? And what is, let's say, the vision that binds together all these particular, these concrete steps?
1: Well, first of all, thank you very much for that summary of uh, of, of all the of, of the entire agenda. That's actually probably a better summary than I would be able to put together uh, in terms of making it, uh, if you like, uh, concise. Um, so I appreciate that and thank you. Um, yes, uh, all of those things, uh, as you can see, there's a student center a- aspect to the reform agenda. In other words, creating something called individual trajectories and allowing uh, students to have more freedom in terms of their their uh, their their um uh actually education program and how they're going through it secondly there is a uh an agenda that concerns professors specifically thirdly there is a funding agenda perhaps mostly most controversial and then uh, there's a merger agenda that has to do with uh, reducing the numbers of of, of numbers of, of universities okay so the, your question was about um it was about inspiration um I think that I'll yeah. interpret that in a different way I think it's a question of are we looking at a particular model that we are emulating? And the answer to that one is no. We have aspects of our vision of the higher education system of Ukraine that are based upon certain aspects of uh, various other jurisdictions. So, for example, the grant system that we have in place is very similar to the UK grant system, whereby the government funds a certain amount of uh, money per student and gives money to students in order to achieve um, that they take to the the particular university that they're going to be studying in. Uh, And then another aspect of that is paid in tuition. So that is actually very similar to the British system, whereby um, a certain amount of tuition does come from out-of-pocket expenses. Uh, In the British system, there's a cap to that. Uh, We will eventually get to a cap in our particular case We actually don't need to get to a cap initially. We will eventually need a cap. But initially, strangely enough, because the uh, higher education system is so competitive, we actually need uh, a a system whereby we're not going to have dumping. In other words, we're not going to have too low a price in tuition uh, because what we're seeing is we're seeing uh, universities accepting students that are not really qualified to go into higher education but are capable of paying a minimal amount of money to actually get their diplomas. So what we're seeing is a, a low quality, uh, a, a reduction of quality because of the fact that diplomas are being bought and sold as opposed to education being provided. And this is something that is a very serious problem. So we're, we're looking at market mechanisms to, 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 to combat that. Uh, and obviously uh, tuition, if you like, partial tuition uh, payments through grants is one of the ways of doing that. And then also creating a floor in terms of... Uh, um if you like tuition prices or tuition uh levels. Um and then obviously there will be a cap that will be placed eventually on tuition levels as well. Mm-hmm. So it is so it so it makes uh balances between the on the one hand accessibility of higher education and on the other hand um making sure that quality is provided as well. So that is one aspect that is very similar to the British system. Uh, the individual uh trajectory concept is actually something that is taken from the North American system and it is actually uh, uh, quite common on the continental European side as well, whereby you will come in to not, in other words, a, a school, someone who is exiting school and starting their bachelor's program will not necessarily have to choose their specialty area immediately upon entry. You will be able to take a generalist program and then, if you like, in the American parlance, choose your major after Uh, let's say, a year or two. That's very different from the British system, which is basically uh, a three-year BA. In the North American system, it's a four-year BA. So um, that aspect is very similar to the North American system. But again, the tuition concept that we have in in place and government grants is something that's not North American-based. The concept of uh, changing the, uh, the, uh, the workload of professors is very much based on a continental system, uh, whereby in, uh, in, on the continent we will have uh, universities, uh, university professors that will be much more research-based or people that will be teaching-based. And that, that, that amount of autonomy is something that, uh, and, and, and the autonomy of universities to be able to, uh, to, to regulate teaching versus research is something that is very much based on continental. And also the continental experience is being taken into account when we're talking about mergers. When I talk about mergers, this is probably the most controversial at the moment uh, thing that we're going through. And this is most difficult because the British experience, for example, in university mergers, I know very well about the wealth. Uh, in Wales, uh, there were several experiences of, uh, of university mergers. But these took a very long period of time. This would be a period that will take two months, three months, etc. We're talking about mergers of universities so that you understand the scale of what we're doing. It's, we're, we're basically doing two mergers a month. Okay, so we're looking at a reduction in the number of universities in the next 12 months of about 20 to 25 institutions, which is something that is unprecedented. Why are we doing that? Because we have a larger number of higher education institutions than we can handle in terms of demographics. Specifically, 15 years ago, Ukraine had approximately 670,000 school graduates, high school graduates per year. Six hundred fifty between six hundred fifty and seven hundred thousand per year. This year, we're looking at we we had three hundred and sixty thousand graduates. So in other words, it's almost half, and that is not that that's not just because of the war. It is because of the war, but it is not just because of the war. Because if I look at demographics today, I can take I can tell you what's going to happen in fifteen years based on the number of children that have been born in the last two years, right? Because those will be school leavers in 17 years. And unfortunately, we're looking at a, uh, a demographic situation of about 250,000 school graduates, school leavers per year. And we have an infrastructure of higher education that is ba- that is built for 700,000, and we are expecting two hundred to 250,000. That, that, that's, the, that's the situation that we're in. So we need to be merging universities. We need to be reducing that institutional infrastructure. And that is obviously something that is extremely difficult to do because every merger is a cultural merger. We're talking about reduction of jobs. Unfortunately, in the higher education sector, that is a reality. It's a very painful reality, but it has to be done. In order for us to be investing into the higher education sector, we need to be investing in a targeted kind of way as opposed to being as opposed to taking a very limited amount of money and spreading it around uh, a very large number of institutions so that we understand each other at the moment uh, the average number of students per higher education institution in Ukraine is about three and a half thousand so if I if I compare that to a UK university which tends to be somewhere around 15 12 to 15,000, Oxford is a good example of that. Cambridge is a good example of that, and we'll have larger universities. Um, we, if we get below the five 6,000 mark, that really starts to impact educational quality. And we are well below the five 6,000 mark. We need to be getting above that mark again uh, very, very quickly. So unfortunately, that process has been delayed for political reasons for a very long time. Uh, it is not a popular thing. I'm not gaining any friends in the higher education sector. Uh, I'm saying, I I would say that most educators understand the need to do this. Uh, most people in the sector understand the need to do this, but of course, as soon as it touches their particular institution, then of course, uh, it's the, you know, the concept of not invented here, therefore it's bad. Um, and so when you touch that particular institution, it becomes very, very toxic and problematic, but, uh, we need to do it because unfortunately the sector needs to be modernized and without... Without this, we cannot invest in any kind of way into the modernization of the sector.
0: Here, I would have two questions. Uh, first, how do you conduct the assessment? How do you identify the universities that uh, need to be merged? And second, um, how, we, how, do, how do you deal with this amount of resistance that you receive uh, when you implement the reforms, most notably, as you said, with regard to the merge of, of different universities?
1: Well, I mean, one of the most common questions that I get is about criteria for mergers. And, of course, these are always very problematic because um, on the one hand, there are objective criteria that have to do with size of university, first of all. Secondly, they have to do with um, quality levels, uh, which are measured by accreditation standards. Uh, We have the equivalent of a QAA. Uh, in, in Ukraine, uh, it's called uh, it's called the National Agency for Higher Education Quality Assurance and I used to be the head of the Secretariat of that agency so I, I, I know the procedures very, very well and I'm very much very much aware of them um, and how they how they work. Um, but those procedures are very often not, um, I mean they are obviously objective uh, results, but they will provide accreditation for a five year period. Um, over a five year period, very often, uh, well, things change, particularly now during COVID and during, uh, and during the, the full-scale war. So um, these accreditation criteria are, are important, but they're not necessarily as objective as I'd like them to be. Um, we are also in a scenario at the moment where we have uh, state funding for higher education is distributed amongst higher education institutions Um, according to a formula that has very specific criteria. And those criteria have to do with um, research outputs. They have to do with um, uh, employment statistics. In other words, employment of graduates. They have to do with internationalization. In other words, this is a complex formula that allows us to see uh, what higher education institutions will receive in terms of funding based on their previous year's experience. Um, And the weaker institutions, uh, the ones that are showing worse results than the better institutions, are merged into better institutions. In other words, what we're trying to do is is the ones that have higher quality levels will be merged uh, with those that, in other words, they'll be sort of, if you like, acquiring or or, um, have lower quality institutions merged into them. Um, Having said that, uh, so these are generally, your question about resistance has to do with the fact that what we're doing is we're taking smaller institutions and merging them into larger institutions so usually it's the smaller institutions that are providing the pushback um and uh and so we have less of a problem because the 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 larger numbers are supporting uh the uh, the the mergers in general um it's never easy politically Uh, i'm not going to suggest that it is something that's going smoothly it's not going smoothly. It's not going uh, in any way, uh, in any way, something that uh, that we can say is uh, you know frictionless. Certainly not. Um, each merger is an individual experience. We had a merger in Odessa that has gone relatively well. One in Mikolaev that went even better. In each case, these are sectoral universities that are being sort of merged into larger universities, and therefore the sectoral aspect is being maintained as a an institution or, if you like, an autonomous faculty within the larger institution. Uh, so that's being done. At the moment, um, probably the most controversial uh, university that is being merged uh, is a place called Tavrisky, uh University, which is the only, unfortunately, university from Crimea that was displaced. Unfortunately, it is no longer in any way Crimean. Uh, it is now, and it's lost all of its Crimean, uh, if you like, connections. Um, and Crimean Tatars, who are a key uh, ethnic minority within Ukraine, are actually generally studying and teaching in other universities, not in this one. And this one has become, uh, uh, according to a lot of criteria, uh, one of the weaker universities, if not the, actually, excuse me, it is the weakest university in Kiev and it is being merged into one of the strongest universities in Kyiv which is called Kyiv Mohyla Academy. Um but at the same time that's being politically controversial uh because obviously uh the, the 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 rhetoric that is being put out by this university is that we are we're we're as they say destroying the last vestiges of a Crimean university displaced Crimean we're not doing that at all what we're doing is we are um we are actually creating a crimean academic center within kimo Ke- Mohila academy uh and providing the the basis for a better crimean academic center uh than we would see in this other university but nevertheless uh, very 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 politically fraught and difficult uh difficult issues
0: mm-hmm. You mentioned that certain mergers actually went better and went very well. How do you actually evaluate the success of a certain merger?
1: Um, The uh, most important aspect of what we're measuring, and obviously this is a little bit too soon to measure this because this is something that uh, the the mergers are happening right now, but I would say that the most important aspect of what we're measuring is student um, satisfaction after the merger. Um, Mm -hmm. In other words, if students are receiving a better level of education as a result of this merger, I would say that that merger is successful 100%. Um, Because unfortunately, every merger will require staff cuts. Um, That's a reality. Uh, As I said, the infrastructure is just too big to be able to handle it in terms of of, uh, and, and to be able to finance it, particularly in wartime. Um, but that's not just because of wartime. It's the infrastructure is just too, too, uh, too large to be able to invest large, num- large an- amounts of money into it. I wanted, I wanted to just point this out. Um, as a percentage of GDP, Ukraine has amongst the highest, uh, the highest levels of education financing of any country in Europe. Um, we are traditionally over the last twenty years have been financing the education sector at the level of 55 to 5.7% of GDP, which is a massive amount if you compare that to other European countries. Unfortunately, the GDP has been shrinking, obviously, uh, during the war, and we need to be rethinking that. Um, The level of infrastructure is just too big to be able to uh, maintain those kinds of financing levels, or perhaps the better better way uh, we can maintain the financing levels as a percentage of GDP and we could actually increase them now in terms of good owner support. But we need to be targeting that into key spots as opposed to sort of spreading it around um, on, on, on a lot of very small, frankly, um, financially unviable educational centers.
0: It's very interesting that you say that we spent more than 5% of our GDP as far as I recall, the average spending in OECD countries is just over 3% for education. Right. That's right. Yeah. It's, That's right. yeah. Uh, one area of reforms that I didn't mention is the supervisory boards of universities. Mm-hmm. Could you please share the vision for these reforms, for this area of reform and the steps that you are going to take?
1: Yeah, well, one of the issues of, of of reforming universities is about university management, and that's one. I mean, we have come in in two thousand fourteen, and actually even prior to that, when two thousand fourteen was the the revolution of dignity, and that actually resulted in a new law on higher education, and then and, and sort of a a complete re uh, rethinking of the way education is run in the country. But one of the things that was put into that law on higher education was a system of rector elections. So um, the academic staff and also a, a portion of students, student delegates, if you like, every five years will, um, will elect, I guess the equivalent in the UK would be the vice chancellor uh, or, the, the, if you like, the principal of the university. Um, and that system is very democratic on the one hand, but it also creates a scenario where university managers are very rarely, if ever, elected from outside of the university community. And unfortunately, that means that um, we have a, uh, if you like, a, a system that is very rarely, um, well, renewed, because new people are not brought into the management of universities. It's always, you, are, you will be elected from people that are from the community, people that are, are able to run a campaign and get elected based on their friends within that university Community. Unfortunately, that does not, that system is not necessarily conducive to university renewal, right? And this is something that we very much need at the moment is the renewal of, of communities. So we need to have people that are brought in uh, through what is very similar in the in the UK system, a search mechanism, right? So you would have principles that would go through a search mechanism. And who's doing the searching? Well, quite frankly, a supervisory board. In other words, a supervisory board that is based on uh, people from business, people from local government some membership of the academic community that is able to choose uh, a principal of a university and implement specific key performance indicators for that person uh, to be achieving. Um, Is it an ideal system? It's something that comes from the corporate world, and therefore it is very often criticized because universities are obviously not corporations. Uh, They are academic communities, and we need to balance that system of um, if you like, the democratic aspect on the one hand and the aspect of university renewal on the other. So we will not be implementing the system of supervisory boards for all universities. We have selected certain universities that will be going through, if you like, a, a, a managerial experiment, and that will be put into place in 2024. And we will see the, re- the, the results of that within a couple of years, because the experiment has a, a sort of a two-year, two-year period and then another time for renewal, et cetera. And we need to see whether or not that, in fact, will will lead to the renewal that we're looking for. Um, And that's, I think, something that is very difficult to implement during wartime in particular. But I think it's important to understand that in Ukraine, we have multiple regions of the country. Certain regions are more affected by the war. Certain regions are less affected by the war. Um, And those that are less affected by the war will be, obviously, those that have a little bit more ability to uh, to 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 go through things like experiments and renewal and that sort of thing obviously we're not touching those regions that are um, near the the, the the front line um, all universities in Ukraine are affected by rocket attacks uh, but there is a f- clear difference between periodic rocket attacks and drone attacks and actually being under fire from artillery and having uh, the front 30 40 kilometers away Uh, So these are sort of the the, the major differences that we need to balance. But the system itself needs to be renewed because Ukraine coming out of the war needs to be a different country than when we entered the war. And education is a very important aspect of that renewal.
0: And if this managerial experiment is successful, you envisage uh, making amendments to the current legislation to make the system universal for all universities?
1: Eric, I think so, but I think that, you know, the concept of an experiment is that we need to understand that, you know, we'll have multiple, we will have multiple um, results and we'll need to analyze those results when the experiment mm. is done. Um, so I don't want to be looking further down the road because I think it's, it's important to allow the experiment to happen uh, without, you know, sort of an understanding of, of, of its its outcome. That, that's the whole purpose of an experiment is to, street, is to see I- uh, things. Yes, we have a hypothesis that a renewal will happen as a result of uh, bringing in new managerial uh, talent into the university system. However, uh, will that in, renewal in fact result in, um, in in community renewal and in actual academic uh, results and, 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 uh, and, and achievements? I think is something that uh, we need to leave leave open.
0: Right. Certainly, looking forward to the results of this experiment. Uh, before the war, uh, foreign students were an important part of ukraine's higher education mm-hmm. with seventy six point uh, five thousand of them studying in ukraine in 2021 mm-hmm. before the, the start of the full scale invasion of the Russian Federation in Ukraine. Uh, do you take any measures to restore ukraine's appeal for foreign students and how realistic is that for universities to try to attract now the students that you used to study in Ukraine?
1: Um, Okay, well, first of all, uh, you're right in terms of the numbers, 73,000. We had uh, approximately 65,000 of those 73,000 were studying in medical uh, schools. Uh, So I think it's important to understand that this was not something that was a mass phenomenon. This was about medical, in particular, medical studies. Uh, And in particular, medical studies focused on uh, countries uh, either from uh, the Middle East, uh, North Africa, or um, uh, the uh, or the Central Asian countries. So primarily, oh, um, well, actually, not only Central Asian countries, but also the Indian subcontinent, um, and and so that would be our, our our if you like our target market. And in all of those cases, uh, students, in order to arrive in Ukraine at this point, would require visas into the European Union. That would at least be travel vi- uh, transit visas. No, because, unfortunately, flights into Ukraine are not operating at the moment. And so renewing that market, if you like, is really a problem for us. Um, uh, having said that, uh, yes, there are very specific efforts being made at making Ukraine a more uh, attractive place for foreign students. However, uh, we are targeting at this point, um, and we have a targeted policy, to increase our joint diploma programs and to increase our integration specifically with OECTA countries. In other words, we're trying to refocus and if you like using the war at the moment as an opportunity to refocus things in terms of internationalization from developing country markets to the OECTA markets. Because I think that, and a lot of us believe that the Ukrainian educational system has something to offer in addition to if you like the traditional aspect of an, a cheap, uh, a cheap, uh, or if you like a, a, an inexpensive version of a European education, I think that we have much more to offer in terms of our internationalization. Uh, Ukrainian studies are things that are actually something that, that is becoming very, very popular throughout the world. Uh, we have a lot of area studies faculties, including my own alma mater, Cambridge. Um, and and Glasgow and Birmingham and a lot of places in the UK uh, and a lot of places in the in, in the Anglo-Saxon world in general. I'm looking at North American countries, would traditionally have Russian studies uh, that are looking for a new, uh, if you like, a, a new lease on life, um, because Russian studies are becoming much less interesting than Ukrainian studies. And so, we are actively supporting uh, the, uh, the the. the uh, uh, popularization of the Ukrainian language, Ukrainian language courses, uh, Ukrainian language standards. As a ministry, we can do that. And in, in addition to that, we are very much involved in, in, in promoting um, joint degrees in a variety of different areas. Ukrainian universities have a lot to offer in computer sciences, uh, particularly in cyber uh, security, but not only uh, product-based IT programming, uh, hardware Robotics, um, everything that has to do with aviation. In other words, the engineering sector, the medical sector. Obviously, we're 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 getting back into social sciences, specifically focusing on on area studies. In other words, there's a variety of different areas in which Ukrainian universities can partner with uh, our European colleagues, and not just European colleagues in the in the OECTA space. And this is something that we're very much working towards at the moment. Can we accept Ukrainian or foreign students at the moment? In generally, no. But cooperative online international learning is something that is very popular, and certainly we are convinced that as soon as hostilities are over and we achieve what we are looking for, and that is called a just peace, uh, we will be welcoming multiple amounts of um, of of Ukrainian students, excuse me, of foreign students to Ukraine, because after all, all of these things that we have ongoing at the moment, whereby Ukrainian students are being accepted to our European by our European colleagues, all of them almost without fail, are being structured as exchange programs. And as exchange programs, that means that we will be looking forward to having OECTA, European, British, whatever it might be, students coming to visit Ukraine on exchange programs as soon as that becomes available and possible.
0: I also wanted to discuss with you the issue of... um scientific potential, the innovative potential of Ukrainian universities? That's, of course, a very complex question, but I'm particularly interested in uh, your vision of the role of uh, academies of science that coexist in Ukraine with with higher education um, institutions and how do they compare with Western analogs? what is the ideal way to structure this institution so that Ukrainian higher education is capable of delivering market-relevant innovations?
1: Um, uh, I would say, look, I, I, this is a very complex issue because uh, many of your, uh, of your listeners will not understand necessarily that we have a system of Academy of Sciences that are institutionally separate from higher education because in normally in the European system, with the exception of Germany, uh, research is done in universities. Uh, I use the German example as an exception because the old Soviet, uh, system was largely based on the German example. And that was that we would put, and this is something that goes back to the days of, uh, of Bismarck, in fact, uh, whereby, uh, The transfer of knowledge would be the function of universities. The um, creation of new knowledge would be the function of the academies of sciences. And of course, if you are in in an authoritarian environment, the last thing that you want to do is to expose young people to those that are creating new knowledge. You want to be able to control the knowledge that is being put into the minds of young people, and therefore universities are sort of controlled places where you do that, and then sort of, sort of you, you you put these crazy scientists into uh, an academy of sciences, and they're they're they they're, they're isolated from students, um, and that obviously was something that that was I mean it's the German experience, it's the Soviet experience, and unfortunately Ukraine has sort of uh, I would say largely um, uh, taken that experience and 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 inherited it. Uh, we need to change that, but that obviously is something that is a very, very difficult process. Uh, over the last, I'd say, 30 years, research within universities has become much more prominent. However, we still have this institutional division between uh, the Academy of Sciences, which is not like the British Academy. It's not just a, if you like, a, um, uh, a prestigious place. It's actually a place of employment, um, very often not very effective employment, because... We have very, very prestigious institutes of the Academy of Sciences, but those are the minority. In general, the Academy of Sciences is not really producing the results that are required of it by society. Universities are producing better research results. Um, However, there is a certain amount of, uh, of, 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 if you like, political latency that is involved in keeping the Academy of Sciences. Thankfully, I am not responsible for the Academy of Sciences within the Ministry of Education. I am, however, responsible for PhD programs. And one of the things that we're trying to do at the moment is to create joint PhD programs on a mass basis between universities and Academy of Sciences institutes so that we bring these two institutions together. Uh, And I think that this is something that will be a huge political challenge in the future to actually go beyond PhD programs. But at the moment, that's sort of the evolutionary step that we've taken.
0: That's a very interesting response. And it's, it's very intriguing to see how, how these um, entities will develop in the future and perhaps close closer, achieve a closer integration with higher mm-hmm. education institutions. Um, Mihailo, I'm very grateful for your time um, that you dedicated today in the evening, just the last question um, to wrap up our conversation. Uh, what are the key lessons and key takeaways from your experience in the Ukrainian government implementing one of perhaps the most comprehensive reforms of higher education in Ukraine's history?
1: Well, that okay, that's not going to be a, a quick answer, and I, I realize that you wanted to finish the, the, the podcast, but it's not going to be a quick answer because um, look, as someone who has spent 20 some odd years as a, a in higher education, as an educator, and to a some extent as an as a uh, as an administrator. Um, in particular, and and my background is sociology. So I'm interested in how people structure themselves in groups and how organizations form, etc. And in particular, I was absolutely amazed in a positive way in February and March and April of last year, when I personally lived through Russia's invasion, and I was living in Kyiv, and um, and yes, we we have a cottage just outside of Kyiv. So I was not necessarily in the center of town on a regular basis, but we spent I mean we spent quite a bit of time. We never left Ukraine. We never left Kyiv Oblast. So um, and and I came back and forth to 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 Kyiv. And one of the things that really struck me was something that I find um, I found during the revolution, uh, first revolution, second revolution. um, I found this during the, uh, the the full scale invasion. I was amazed by the, I, this aspect of flat, um, well, uh, what we call situational leadership and flat structures being created. In other words, um, anti-hierarchy being something that is the norm of self-organization. And this is something that I found to be very attractive in the university system because universities tend to also be, I mean, I don't know very many academics that enjoy hierarchy. It's not something that that they that academics are you know they thrive on the idea of of org charts and uh, and 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 clear um uh, and, and clear work tasks. That's not generally about academia. Academia is about uh, a certain level of, of freedom and self organization and 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 this is something that we be, that became a mass phenomenon uh, on multiple occasions that I lived through in Ukrainian history. Now. In the last eight months, I'm in a very hierarchical system called government. And I think that one of the things that we need to do to reinvent reform, one of the things that we need to do in order to to figure out how to really implement reform is to restructure the way that we think about government to be much more of a a non-hierarchical system. And We can't flatten it completely. That's impossible. But there's this concept of heterarchy. In other words, this idea of a network society that has situational leadership and you create um, small hierarchical groups for particular tasks. And I think that that's something that is the key to the success of reforms. If you try to implement reforms and transformation by fiat, in other words, by simply saying, uh, today we have an executive order, or tomorrow we have legislation that is being implemented, and that's it. Everybody sort of you know must stand in line. You are doomed to fail. Um, it takes a lot longer because you need to be but you need to be getting buy-in from multiple stakeholders. You need to be finding situational leaders on the ground that will be very important to the implementation of that of, of, of policy. Um, but that's the only way to make it stick. It's the only way to make sure that you're not going to have massive pushback. Uh, you still have pushback, of course, because you're not going to. Be, I mean, reform is never something that is going to be accepted on a mass scale. Uh, and you know, someone comes in with with a with with a, an idea, and therefore they are going to be accepted as you know uh, as the Messiah. I, that's that's not the way things work. Um, every time it's a political discussion, but the issue is that the political discussion has to be a, a, a very much a horizontal discussion that involves multiple stakeholder groups. Um, but it, because I think that's the major takeaway. In the past, we've tried to, inf- you know, we've, we've looked for, if you like, the in in the economic sphere, we've looked for the Baltsaroviches of the world. In other words, this might be you know, the person that comes in and implements something. Those windows of opportunity to implement things on a sort of a charismatic leader kind of way uh, are, first of all, very, very short, very brief. Uh, secondly, there is no... Guarantee that the leader, charismatic leader, will appear. The reforms need to be done anyway, so you need to be involving multiple stakeholder groups. Uh, that's a very, very tiresome, difficult process, um, and uh, it is helpful when you have a hierarchy supporting you in terms of the the, the stability aspects of the reform or the, the stability aspects of managing the system but it is not helpful for the reform aspects and the heterarchy concept is not necessarily helpful for maintaining stability. So creating that balance between these two social structures is in fact very difficult. I'm sorry for ending this podcast with a little bit of a, if you like, an academic approach, but I think you asked for takeaways and this is something that I'm really struggling with uh, in the middle of my implementation. How do I balance between uh, this idea of networks and stakeholders and hierarchy, on the other hand, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm far. We're far from from achieving the balance in every single aspect and in every single project. Um, but I think that 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 balance is really the key to to trying to find the implementation strategy.
0: Do you think that flat management structures are overall preferable to? Yes, kind of I do.
1: I do for for a ver, uh, I do for a post-industrial society. Academia is, by definition, post-industrial. Uh, if you're looking to uh, implement or manage something in a factory, in an industrial society, obviously you need a hierarchy. We have, become accept- we have become accustomed to the concept of hierarchy because we come from an industrial society. But we are in a new reality today, uh, and this goes for all of Europe, uh, and it is uneven in terms of that shift from industrial to post-industrial. But, I mean, I, for all of the things that can be criticized in terms of this idea of post-industrial society, creative class, you know, Richard Florida's idea of creative class, um, all of these things can be criticized. But at the end of the day, we are moving to a different kind of society than we were used to in the 20th century. And um, it is flatter. It is more based on situational leadership. It is more based on um, on, on this idea of informal uh, informal contacts between us and this idea of stakeholders is something that is very important. So yeah. um, I, I think that we are moving in that direction. It is uneven because um, multiple groups still live in a hierarchical paradigm. And and that's what makes, I think, transformation very difficult, uh, but at the same time very exciting.
0: Great. Uh, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. I'm sure that I definitely found it very interesting, but I'm certain that all my colleagues um, and all the um, academic community of the Blavating School of Government will certainly enjoy your experience and your takeaways from reforming the higher education sector in Ukraine. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you and good luck to you all. Uh, Those that are studying, those that are um, ensuring the quality of studies, uh, my regards to Oxford as the other place. In regards to cambridge as well but eric thank you very much for running this and uh for all of the one, all of you that are ukrainian uh studying there we are very much looking forward to your coming home with new knowledge uh new abilities and a new vibrancy that is really something that is, is going to be very much valued in the new ukraine
0: definitely thank you